You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. Do you have strong reasons for not accomplishing things that you really want in life? I call these I can't reasons. What if those reasons are really just excuses based on stories that you absolutely believe? Hey, hello, I'm your host, Louis DiBianco, and welcome to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. If you get value from the show, please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes, a brief review, and click subscribe. This will help to spread the word. Also, at the site, Change Your Story, podcast.com, make sure to download your free ebook, Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. Today's guest, I would describe as an all-American kid, a guy who was always passionate about sports. He also became a successful serial entrepreneur, which he is today. And he's an author, a speaker. He's a pro athlete on the national team in track and field. He's also an accomplished professional podcaster with his own show called The Creative Success Show. His name is Tanner Gears, and I'm excited and honored to welcome him to the show. Tanner, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Louis. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, man, after listening to your podcast, I said, gotta interview this guy. (laughs) Thank you so much. That's awesome. Well, it's true. So, okay, let's do the obvious. Begin at the beginning. Where were you born? Lafayette, Louisiana. Lafayette, Louisiana. Do you like Cajun food? I love Cajun food. Creole, boiled crawfish, jambalaya. Of course, who can live without a couple good beignets? And (laughs) uh, yeah, so definitely. Yeah, we have, I live in Toronto and we have a, a few really good Cajun restaurants here. Do you come from a big family? No, not really. Relatively small family. How small? Were you an only child? No, just my brother and I. I had one younger brother, 13 months apart. But I'm, I'm talking about more of my entire family. You know, my close family is... Uh, or, or direct family is just the four of us. And then I don't have a lot of aunts and uncles on either side. I don't have a lot of cousins. It's, uh, you know, relatively a small family. I would say all in all, probably about, you know, that are alive. Mm. Yeah, I'm having, I'm having a hard time even coming up with 20 people. It's probably closer to under 15. Well, who would you say from your childhood was the biggest influence on you, on your values and your mindset? That is a great question. I don't think that it was as much of anybody in my family as much as it was external influences. 
outside of that. So I really looked up to sports stars. Barry Sanders was like my idol. I really looked up to him and what he stood for as a person, um, you know, on and off the field. I really related to him because I'm a smaller guy. He's a smaller guy, uh, you know, playing in the NFL. And of course, I loved playing football. So I really looked up to him. What were the qualities of uh, Barry Sanders, you said? Yes. Yes, Barry Sanders. So he was a running back to the Detroit Lions, and he was very shifty. He could move laterally very fast. He was very fast up and down the field. But more than that, he was humble. So when he would score a touchdown, he would always you know, return the ball to the referee. And this was back in the day. You know, this was in the 90s that when end zone dancing was a big thing. You know, if you can think back to Deion Sanders and you know, that era where there was a show going on in the end zone whenever a touchdown was scored, he didn't do that. But he was one of the greatest running backs to play the game. So mm -hmm. I really appreciated and admired that. But you said that also off the field, you admired what, what qualities were they? Well, like he was a family man and he lived in Detroit. He didn't have this abundant, extravagant lifestyle. Right. And he knew his zone. He knew how to play his position and he played it on and off the field. So, you know, so being family focused and humble about what you're capable of doing and not, you know, not just being so extravagant. I think it's great to, to live up to your potential and you can do it at very, very high levels. But being able to treat someone with treating someone like they're your equal and not just running by them uh, metaphorically is um, means a lot to me. Yeah, I get you. So the guy was balanced and he had a real sense of his own uh, humanity. He was centered. That's, that's great. What was life like as a child for you? It's a great question. It was random. Uh, we moved a lot. So I live now in Phoenix, Arizona, and we moved to Tucson, Arizona, just before I started high school. And before that, I was born in Lafayette, Louisiana. I lived in several places in Louisiana, different places. I lived in Mobile, Alabama, Jacksonville, Florida, Orlando, Florida, Houston, Texas, Anaheim, California. And that was all before high school. So we moved around a lot. And, you know, that brought a sense of unbalance a sense of uncertainty to my childhood, but I don't have nearly as much to complain about as a lot of people do, but you know, who's going to listen anyway? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a great point in terms of that being uprooted constantly. How would you say you turned that around and made it into something that you were able to harness and channel into your success? Certainly. So I think that being the new kid all the time really helped me develop as a person. It helped me develop communication skills, emotional intelligence. And while I wasn't a good storyteller until later in life, it did allow me to relate to people and figure out how to get in, how to, like Dale Carnegie's book, how to win friends and influence people. And so really develop, it developed myself as a leader and mm -hmm. you know, that's what influence is, right? Leadership. So 
that's that's what I how I really think that being uprooted so much really helped me be a leader in my life, be a leader in my business, and definitely with my circle of influence. I love it. There's an expression um, that I learned in my studies in personal development. Everything happens for a reason, and that reason is there to serve me. And this is an example in your life. One thing, again, getting back to sports for a moment, because I know you were crazy about many sports. Was football your favorite one? I was definitely sold on the dream of football that I could actually play college or even professional football. Maybe that was because I idolized Barry Sanders. Maybe that was because I went to middle school in Houston where Texas is a huge football state. I mean, we played tackle padded football starting in seventh grade. And when I moved to Arizona, in the middle of eighth grade, and they said that they played flag football in middle school. I thought that I was at a school with a bunch of sissies, but <laughs> that's just uh, but that's just how they do it over here. So, yeah, but I I loved football, but I also played lacrosse, which I wish I would have gotten to much sooner because I ended up being really good at that. I wish I would have stuck with baseball longer. I think baseball and soccer were probably the sports that I excelled in the most, mm-hmm. and. Yet I was I loved football. I loved just playing football, and I was sold that dream as a uh, five foot eight white boy with moderate genetic ability. Would you say that as a kid, that was perhaps part of your childhood dream to become a professional football player? I think that it goes a little bit deeper than that. I think that that's probably pretty surface level. But I was. I was often the small kid and I thought that there was something to prove and I was not physically abused, but you know, we were punished a lot and maybe I wanted to take out some aggression on some other people. Maybe that this was an avenue, a field where what my grit, what my determination, my level of toughness, how I can display my body and express it on the field in a violent sport was a release for me. Hey, man, I like that. Thanks for sharing that. You, uh, you took it to another level, you know, and um, thanks for the transparency. That's, that's really, really great. You were restless after finishing school. I got that from your bio. What kinds of things did you do? I dropped out of college. I wasn't mature enough yet. I think that I was still dealing with a lot of personal issues. And, and Louie, that's why, you know, I'm able to go deep now is because I've gone down this personal development journey and it's something, it's like leadership. It is a daily thing, improving myself inside and thereby improving my external life. And it took me a while to really get to that moment where I need to develop myself and realize that and then actually take the steps to do so. But back when I was young and dumb and in college, I, I dropped out. I just wasn't ready for that. And then after college, I thought that I would use my mouth to create careers for myself, create a job for myself, at least some income. So I would work in call centers. I did telemarketing 
and you know cold calling. Uh, I did door-to-door sales. Uh, I sold Cutco knives. So, you know, sales was something that I was drawn to because the limit for income and potential was not really low by any sense of the word. You know, and so I, I took to that because I I knew that. It, at some level, I knew that I had value. And even though I'm dealing with all these emotional, psychological things, you know, I, I was drawn to sales because of that potential. But at the same time, I'm living this life where you know, I'm partying hard, I'm drinking hard, I'm doing wild things, I'm getting into fights, you know, a little continuation of the football, right? I'm, I'm you know, I'm very violent. And I'm just going down the wrong path. It's it was a it was a life a sad life. I fought all the time. I mean, there was a we were I was climbing this mountain of psychological issues, and it it ended up coming to the point where I was so reckless and violent, and my behaviors were so criminal that I thought to myself, you know what? If I get caught and I go to jail. At least I don't have to worry about paying the rent. That was the kind of mindset that I had. And so, yeah, I'd be, I'd be with my friends, right? We would be what we would call pre-gaming. So we would be partying before the party. And, I'd, and I would often say something like, you know, you smell that? And they'd be like, no, what is that? And I'm like, mm, smells like we're going to get into a fight tonight. Wow, <laughs> and, you know, but so that's how wild I was, and I laugh at that now because it's so, it's so, not who I am. It's it was, I was suffering from some things that maybe had been buried while I was a child, and you know, it took it took years of self growth and development and discovery for you know, me to even learn who I was. Well, you know, it's interesting. You said that you did criminal things. Like, what kind of criminal things? Well, I probably shouldn't discuss that, but... <laughs> so I would, you know, stealing was a common occurrence. Hey, join the club, buddy. Yeah. I, I, I was a kid who was, you know, running on the wrong side for a long time as well. I get it. But, you know, what's fascinating is I hadn't realized this before. You talked about having these psychological issues that you were that were creating a lot of conflict and violence for you. Can you discuss that a little bit more? Yes, certainly. Subconscious, deeply rooted feelings of Mm self-worth, feelings of, you know, am I good enough and feelings of, you know, sadness and depression. So. Whether that was someone else being sad and depressed about around me or making me feel that way or, uh, you know, whatever it was, um, those were the issues that I was dealing with. And so I actually got help with this uh, not too long ago. And it was really interesting to hear what the therapist had to say. And it was really liberating for me. It took so much weight off of my shoulders. And I mean, even as successful as I've been. Right. Even though I've been able to do so much at the same time, I've been, you know, battling those things. So I in 2012, at the end of 2012, you know, at this time, I'm already a published author. Uh, You know, I have started multiple businesses. Uh, You know, I graduated college. 
And I did all of that. And yet at the same time, mentally, I didn't feel like I deserved any of it. Wow. You talked a bit about your restlessness in your bio. You actually used the expression that you felt you needed to get out of Dodge. Where did you go? So that began the process of me enlisting into the military. I was really affected by 9-11. My brother and I were going to enlist in the buddy system together. But then, you know, kind of dealing with those issues, the story I told myself was, you know, screw the man. I'm not doing the military. Even though I knew <laughs> I knew I needed to get out. I wasn't, I wasn't ready yet. So my brother went. I stayed back. And then I finally, like, fell further down the rabbit hole and then realized, okay, I gotta, I've got to do something. i got to get out of Dodge. I've got to take myself out of this situation. So I started the enlistment process into the military. I was deep into that. I had already taken ASVAP. I knew what my vocational goal was going to be in the military. And I really only had to sign my name on the dotted line. And back then, in Tucson, Arizona, you actually had to get bussed up to Phoenix to actually do the signing. The official recruitment office was in Phoenix. And um, that's what I was waiting to do. And then something happened, yes? Yes. You, can you relate that story to us? Certainly. So, like I was saying, my brother was already in the military. And March 27th is his birthday. That was a Saturday in 2004. And I was hanging out with my friends. I was partying. I was really kind of reminiscing and missing and feeling detached from my brother. He and I are pretty close. And... So I was, uh, I was getting hammered. I was getting wasted. And the next day, you know, I'm, I'm with my friends and, you know, it's time for me to go home. On the way home, I lost control of my car and I had a, a severely tragic auto accident where ultimately a tree came through my windshield, impaling me in the face. And when I woke up in the hospital in May or um, in late April, I was totally blind. Wow. For the benefit of, of, the, of, the, of the listeners, you said this tree impaled you in the face, but it did much more than that. The impact was so severe that when the tree hit me in the upper left hemisphere of my face, right about my eyebrow, my forehead area on the left side, it blew off chunks of my skull my forehead, my cheek, and my eye flew out of my head. There was so much skull missing that you could see my brain. It was exposed to the air. My jaw's broken, glass is everywhere, blood is everywhere, and my back is broken. And at this moment, for some unknown reason, I'm still conscious. I'm trying to rip glass from my face and head and pull myself to safety, pull myself out of the car. Wow. What amazes me is, you said you woke up in the hospital how long after this accident? Oh, weeks. I mean, this, was, this accident was March 28th, and, you know, I remember, um, I guess it was in May, because I remember leaving the hospital Memorial Day weekend. And so wow. two weeks before that, I woke up. What did the doctor say about the reason that you did not die from that kind of severe impact. Because I'm a fucking badass. Wow. Really? <laughs> no, no. I mean, besides that. 
No, I just I just like to boost myself up sometimes and just realize like how grateful I am uh, to still be alive because really I should be dead. I they they don't know. I mean, Louie, and th- that shouldn't have been the only reason I I should have died. I mean, I should have died a couple times, and you know, all stemming from this accident. I mean, the emergency services wrote me off, so even though I'm conscious at the time and I like know my name and I'm speaking. You know, they just put me on a bodyboard um, wow. on the road, and they they don't they don't even put me on a bodyboard. Like I'm so uh, it's so severe. All right, so I flew down this hill, and it's so severe that they don't put me in a neck brace. They don't put me on a bodyboard to get me up the hill to get me back to the street. They just carry me by my hands and feet. They were literally treating me like I was dead on arrival. They just carried me by my hands and feet. And anybody who's in emergency services, anybody who's in the medical field, or anybody who's even seen a car accident, you know the first thing that they do is put people in a neck brace and then put them on a board. It might be the gurney or whatever, but they don't carry them by their hands and feet and put them in the back of the ambulance. That doesn't happen. So... um, you know, and then from blood loss, I started to lose consciousness. And uh, finally, life support came. And, you know, 75 minutes later, I made it to the hospital. So I should have I died in the accident. I should have died immediately. I Tanner, died. let me ask you this. When you woke up and now you're conscious and you discover, okay, among other things that, you know, happened to my body, I am totally blind. What was your first reaction? a good question i think my first reaction was that it's not real this isn't happening it didn't really touch me deeply the gravity of the situation didn't fall on me until weeks went by weeks weeks because no one would really tell me that i was never going to see again the the hope was that i was going to get my sight back and time eventually fell, and so did the hope that I would see again. So when it finally dawned on you, okay, that's it, I am never going to see again, what was your first response, emotional response? Utter, utter depression, sadness, worthlessness, hopeless, helpless, I'm disabled. People listening really take note of this because the man who's on this podcast right now is full of life. He is accomplishing things that people with sight don't believe they can accomplish. And look at what he had to overcome. So let's find out about that. How did you begin to find the belief that you could have a meaningful life again? Well, that's a great question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me how did I come to that belief. And I think that it stemmed from, you know, my parents pushing me to do more, achieve more, become more after the accident, you know, really supporting me. And at the time, mentally, I mean, I am so anxious I'm going to die because I've got all these medical issues going on after the accident. Um, I'm severely depressed because I realize that 
I can't see. And I, because of that, there's every door that I, that I saw open is, has now closed. And the life that I was going to create for myself is not possible. So nothing's possible. That was how I felt. Nothing is possible. I'm going to sit in a corner and stare at the wall for the rest of my life. And then when my parents die, I'm going to be helpless. It's, it's over. Hmm. And that's what I was thinking. So one day, my dad you know, came over to me. You know, he said, Tanner, you know, you know, what can I do? I said, Dad, you, know, you can't do anything. I'm blind. He waited before he told me, you know, Tanner... I know it's difficult right now, and it will be, but it could always be worse. Tanner, you could be blind, and you should be in a wheelchair. Tanner, you could be blind in a wheelchair, and mentally, you should be a vegetable. Tanner, you should be dead. When he told me that, it wasn't painful. It opened my eyes to see that you're right. Like, it could be worse. And I'm lucky to be alive. And if I am going to do something with myself, it's going to be because of me. I still have my hands. I still have my feet. I still can speak and articulate myself within a conversation. I can engage somebody. And that is enough. That's all I really need. And so that's when I first got motivated. And there were some other things along the way that, you know, helped me figure things out. But um, that's where it all started. That's very powerful. Um, what other things? By the way, how old were you when this happened? I was aged 21. 21. Wow. So you said a few other things happened to add to your driving force that led you to success? What were those other things? Certainly. So I've always had the entrepreneurial spirit burning inside of me, and I have failed numerous times, Louis, numerous times as an entrepreneur, and thereby I have learned a shit ton. But so I started going back to school. I went to school full time, uh, started, learned how to live on my own. So at, you know, now, just in 2005, by April of 2005, I have signed a lease of my first apartment, so less than 12 months after getting out of the hospital. By August of 2005, I'm going to school full-time and, and living on my own full-time. By May of 2006, I'm now working full-time. So again, in the next semester, I'm working full-time and going to school full-time. I bought a home. Two years. Well, I want to slow you down because people, I'm sure, are thinking, okay, how did you do those things if you're blind? Yes. So believe in yourself and relentlessly pursue the, the goals that you have and don't get caught up with the goals. Be focused on the action that it takes every single day. Focus one step at a time. I mean, those are the basic principles behind why anybody does anything. Well, what kind of job? What kind of job did you get? It was a call center job. Pretty easy. Okay. All right. Yeah, and and how, how did you manage to live on your own? Like what did you have to, what skills did you have to quickly learn to be able to live on your own blind? So it gets pretty basic and then it gets pretty advanced and there's ways to do anything, but I might have to do them a little bit differently because I'm blind. So for the longest time, me peeing, just using the bathroom was a, was a chore because I would often piss on the floor right. and, and 
when, so I learned how to do that. I, even brushing my teeth, I was so sick and tired of getting toothpaste on my face, toothpaste on my shirt, toothpaste on the counter. I just could not figure out how to not be a mess and brush my teeth. And then one day it clicked. Right? So I was always trying to put the toothpaste on the toothbrush and the toothbrush in my, in my mouth. Like everybody brushes their teeth. Like I brushed my teeth for 21 years. But the toothpaste is going to go in the mouth anyway. Why don't I just put the toothpaste in the mouth first? I did that one morning. I had a breakthrough. I realized that. That's how I've been brushing my teeth ever since. And I've never gotten toothpaste on the counter, on my face, on my shirt, ever since. So there's ways to do things when you're blind. You just got to learn how to do them. And so they have, claim, they have classes and trainings and independent living skills, uh, courses that you can take to learn all that stuff. Wow. I would like to love to know, <laughs> did, 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 you, did you cook for yourself at first? I mean, how did you eat? Absolutely. I love to cook. I love food. And I definitely cook for myself. I mean, <laughs> I mean is there, is, you know, mistakes happen, right? And you just learn. So one of the first times I'm living on my own with my friends come over, I'm cooking a quesadilla and I'm hustling up and they get there right as it's like coming off the stove. And, and so I'm excited that they're there, right? And I'm very hungry. And so I'm trying to cut my quesadilla and I'm cutting my quesadilla and I cut it too fast and I cut my thumb. And oh. I cut my thumb deep. So, yeah, I love to cook. I mean, there's videos on me of me on YouTube cooking a meal with my friend Sam. You know, I'm a health and health, nutrition and fitness expert. You know, I have my, my health and fitness blog, um, you know, so yes, I mean, food is a you know, Southern Louisiana food is <laughs> food runs through my veins. Wow. How did you then go on to become a motivational speaker? That really started because of my success in athletics in 2011 was when I first made the U S national team in track and field. I had in 2008, I started playing blind baseball and that through glass that threw gasoline on my pilot light like I was motivated before but then the ability to play sports again was life-changing so 2008 started playing beat baseball which is blind baseball because of my success there found out about track and field started doing that in 2011 that's when I also made the US national team and then you know I've gone on and and become a US Paralympian and made world championship teams and I've won international gold medals and, you know, I've done cycling and, you know, a lot of different sports. Tanner, can you describe to me how you play blind baseball? I just can't even begin to envision that. Right. And the way that I tell the story does not give it justice. You really need to see it happening. Plus, there's so many subtle variances that this may not make sense to someone who knows baseball. But if you know baseball, the biggest thing is that the pitcher is actually on the batter's team, right? We're not trying to strike blind guys out. That would be pretty simple. The object is to hit the ball. So the pitcher is on the batting team. And when you bat, there's only three things that can happen. One is you strike out because it still happens. Two is you hit the ball and score a run. Or three, you hit the ball and get put out, right? So there's never anybody on base. You either hit the ball and score a run, or you, when you hit the ball, you don't. And so how an out happens, and just like in baseball, there's three outs in an inning, 
if you hit the ball and the defense picks it up, if they locate it because it's beeping, beep, 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 so you hit the ball out, and if they locate it and pick it up off the ground before you get to the base, it's an out. If not, it's a run. Oh, okay, so in this instance, you're using a ball that beeps, so uh, listening, you know when it's approaching and when to swing. No, for, for batting, it's different. Uh, for batting, you don't need the to hear the ball. The ball beeping is strictly so that the defense can find it and pick it up. We Balls cost about 45 bucks each, and you can go through a few balls in a game easily just because the abuse that they take on from batting. So you practice batting actually with dead balls. But as a batter, and if I do say so myself, the greatest beat baseball batter who's ever played the game, uh, you're talking to him. So as a batter, it's my job to swing in the same spot every time and initiate that sequence, begin swinging based on the pitcher's cue. So he'll say something like, all right, ready, set, ball, or ready, set, pitch, and he's letting me know that the ball's coming. And so mm-hmm. his job is to know where I'm going to swing and put the ball there. Mm-hmm. My job is to swing and hit that ball. Wow. That's awesome, man. That is awesome. It's so much fun. So, you know, I'm, I'm working on trying to get them to improve the page and make it more visually friendly because there's people who are interested in the sport that are sighted and to really bring more awareness, to bring more progress to the game, to bring more sponsors and opportunity to the sport. I think we really need to make it a visually appealing site. It's not visually appealing as it is right now, but if you went on YouTube or if you went on NBBA, that's National Beat Baseball Association, nbba.org, you can see a video there. Hmm. I'm definitely going to check that out. I mean, it's it's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So, you started becoming a motivational speaker. Where did you begin? What was your first speech? My first speech was for a church group. A church group had found out that I was on the U.S. national team and they wanted me to come speak. And from there, school and educational opportunities started to pop up. And then I got into a corporate gig. My first corporate gig was in 2012. And I've also spoken at various nonprofits for, you know, individuals with disabilities, wounded warriors. Next month, I'm speaking for the VA here in Phoenix at their uh, at a visually impaired specific conference. And so the speaking career has gone on from there. What's the largest audience you've spoken in front of? Uh, probably a few hundred people, like three or four hundred people, I would say. Yeah. And when you speak, are you nervous when you go up? I used to be super nervous, but now, no, not anymore. Because this is one of the great things about storytelling is that when you know your story and you practice and practice and practice and practice and practice and practice and practice because you've got to practice if you're going to get better at anything, Mm -hmm. right? And when you know your story so well, you can begin to customize it for the audience. But the first time you're speaking for a new audience, that can be intimidating. The, in the beginning stages, when you're still developing your story, 
that can be intimidating in front of a large group or just transitioning from practicing by yourself to speaking in front of a few people to speaking in front of a room of people to speaking in front of an auditorium you know with each level of progression it can be more intimidating thankfully you know i look at my vision loss as an asset i look as i i look at it as an opportunity and it's an advantage for me because it doesn't matter if it's 100 people or 100,000 people. The only difference between the size of those audiences is me hearing them when they're cheering at the end of the speech. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's great, man. That's a wonderful way to frame it. Oh, man, that, that is wonderful. What appeals to you most about professional sports? What is it that lights your fire? I like professional sports because it is the pinnacle of human physical expression. You know, so of course we have, you know, artistic expression through painting and sculpting. And yes, is that physical? Absolutely. Drawing, um, you know, even, even a play, right? Acting like your profession is a very physical piece of expression, but I would lean it more towards artistic expression that manifests manifests itself physically and when i say the peak level of the physical expression i really mean in the truest sense of physical physicality so that's what i really like about it i love how mental it is even though it is physical as one of my mentors dr jim afromo says you know at the peak levels of sport 90% of it is above the neck. Mm-hmm. So true. Absolutely. Mindset. Absolutely. How did you become an author? I was inspired to tell my story, and so I started writing that way. And then as I first got online in 2013 with my health and fitness blog, and I wanted to write about health and fitness. So I was creating this huge epic book on how to work out and how to eat right. And I just never got the, the balls to actually hit publish. I wrote it. It was, it was like 100,000 words. And its length was correlated to my fear of publishing it because I would just keep writing and writing and writing and writing and writing. That was the story I told myself. It needs more content. It needs to be the most comprehensive program manual ever. And then I finally got over that, and I was, I was burnt out. And I thought, hmm. What's, what's something that a lot of people need? And I heard a stat where it was something like 50 million Americans eat fast food every day. And I was like, whoa, that is horrendous. And so I, my first book was about how to help people make the right, you know, a better nutritional decision at a fast food restaurant. So it's called uh, Absolutely Lean Fast Food, The Fast Food Guide for a Fast Food Life. Mm. Or the fat loss guide, the fat loss guide for a fast food life. Uh, where, where was it published? It was self-published. It was published on Kindle. Fantastic! And did it do well? It it did as well as I marketed it. Uh huh. And that was I didn't market it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, besides selling it on my website and using the traffic there, you know, you know, it it sold a few copies. It wasn't by any means a Amazon bestseller. You know, I, I want to, uh, again, remind people to really take note of what you're hearing here. Tanner 
besides playing sports, besides speaking, besides uh, doing a podcast, which we're going to get into in a moment, and writing, and having a blog, he has created an online presence that is impressive. And how many of you might be sitting there thinking, you know, I'd like to get started online, but gee, it's just a little bit too complicated. I don't know what to do. Um, maybe that's just a story. If Tanner could do it with the obstacles that he is facing, so can you. Now, I would love to know about your podcast. Share with us how you began it and what the vision behind it is. Yeah, and I just want to also on the pick, want to ride the coattails of what you just said right there. Ladies and gentlemen, right now, it is so easy to get online. I mean, seriously, with drag-and-drop website builders, and I'm not talking about Squarespace or Wix. I'm talking about WordPress. WordPress has, that's how I build all my websites on WordPress. And if you want to blog or video blog or sell something, getting on WordPress is the best way to do it. And it's so easy nowadays because of these drag and drop website builders. And, you know, so do it and well, it could change your life. But, um, you know what? I love what you just said, but of course I am curious to know how do you build a website on WordPress if you can't see it? So great question. I, can't build. I cannot build a visually appealing website because I can't see it, right? So what I've done is I have uh, hired people to build it for me. And because I've seen before, you know, I understand colors. I understand what things look like. I can describe what I want to create and then they help me create it. And, you know, I can give you some of the links like creativesuccessshow.com. That's my podcast. URL. That's where my uh, podcasting website is. Uh, my health and fitness blog, absolutelylean.com. Those were all built on drag and drop templates. And you will see how elegant they are, how beautiful they are. People compliment me on them all the time. And that's a drag and drop builder. So I just describe what I want and my guy builds it. Now, how do you know that the person's done the job that you want? Well, I get feedback from, you know, my mom or my wife. I ask them, you know, describe this to me. And, and they do. And, and it looks great. Uh, I actually have been on the uh, podcast website. And you're right. It's uh, beautifully done. Uh, incredibly um, efficient and elegant. And highly professional. Kudos to you, my friend. So tell us about your podcast. So, my thank you, and I really appreciate you saying that about my website, and I will forward that along to my developer. But my podcast is in the self-help category with an entrepreneurial focus. So, I really am focused on helping people launch their business, giving them the strategies, the tools, the tips, all the resources that I've used to build my businesses, and you know, motivate them to take action. That is the core of what my podcast is about. And I love my podcast description because it says, you know, everybody poops. And this podcast isn't to talk about intestinal regularity, but to regularly show you that you are no different from every great author, blogger, sports personality, or professional who's walked the earth, right? And life is going to poop on us from time to time. But this podcast, it makes it stink a whole lot less. 
<laughs> and uh, so slowly tell us the name of the podcast. Sure. It is Creative Success Show. And you can find it on iTunes and also on Stitcher. Yep, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and then, of course, creativesuccessshow.com. And uh, that really stems from, you know, sometimes, you know, we can be successful in life. No matter your situation, you can be successful. Sometimes we got to get creative to achieve that success, right? Like how I put the toothpaste in my mouth and how I'm able to use the bathroom now without pissing all over the floor. And <laughs> How I get online and write emails, which was one of the first questions you asked me. And so, you know, we can do whatever it is that we intend to do. We just sometimes we got to get creative to achieve it. You use uh, software to to write emails online. Yes. And to also to quote unquote, read them. That's a, yep. Absolutely correct. Yeah. You know, people listening you know, sometimes when you hear someone who's highly successful and they're attempting to motivate you, I can understand that you might be a little skeptical and you'll say, well, it's easy for that person to say. But, you know, in this case, I don't think there are any excuses left because this is a guy who's not only done it against what many would consider impossible odds, but he's still doing it and enjoying it. So where do you see yourself and want to be in the next five years? I see myself speaking on stage, traveling the world, and influencing audiences. I can really say that without any hesitation because I understand that's where I am supposed to be. I feel that is my biggest contribution. That's how I'm going to reach the most people and really reach them right? Really reach them, touch them to their core. And, you know, so that's what I want to do. And that's one of the reasons why I started the podcast. It's just to reach more people and to develop my voice, develop, to develop my abilities so that when my opportunity comes, I seize it. Absolutely. That's a beautiful thing. And I know you'll do it and people take advantage of it, you know, because, it can be absolutely life-changing. I want to ask you, when are you going to do your first TED Talk? Such a great question. I have been looking to get on TED for a couple of years now. And recently, it's so funny that you mentioned that. Recently, some I was introduced to somebody and we have just begun a conversation. I don't know where it's going to go or where it's going to take me. But like you say, no coincidences. Everything happens for a reason. And so I'm guessing my TED Talk is going to be within the next 365 days. I'm willing to bet that it is. Absolutely. And I'll be one of the first to listen to it, my friend. How can people contact you? Thank you, Louis. It's been an awesome ride. I really appreciate you, and I appreciate you having me on. If you're picking up what I'm putting down, the best place to pick up more of it is at Creative Success Show, creativesuccessshow.com. And I'm everywhere on social media at Tanner Gears. And by the way, Gears um, is spelled G E R S. That's it right. sounds like the gears of a car, but it's G E R S, Tanner Gears. 
Tanner, thank you so much. This has been enriching for me and I know for my audience. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Tanner's life-changing story today. Remember to share your love for the show on iTunes and Stitcher with your ratings and reviews. And rush over to ChangeYourStoryPodcast.com and grab your free gift, Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. During the next week, take a courageous look at all your I can't reasons. Challenge them with this powerful question. How can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.